Hi, and welcome to the Newberry Chronicles. This is a podcast where two people read through every Newberry medal-winning book, and then we talk about it. My name's Michael. And I'm Rebecca. And this time, we're back in the 1920s, um, everyone's favorite decade for the Newberry Medal. And uh, we're reading, we've already read, uh, The Voyages of Dr. Doolittle by Hugh Lofting, um, which won the Newberry Medal in 1923. So this was only the second Newberry Medal-winning book ever after The Story of Mankind. So it had big shoes to fill after that hulking tome. Probably my number one Newberry Medal so far is uh, The Story of Mankind, as I'm sure it is both, uh, most people's. Um, but uh, anyway, before we talk about Dr. Doolittle, we're going to talk about what we've been reading recently. Um, Rebecca, would you like to go first or shall I? Um, I can go. I am not going to talk about the ones that we read in 2023. Um, like There are some that we finished that I finished after we did Free Water, but um, we talked about some of those in our special episode. So um, I'll just start with what I've read this year so far. Um, I read Made, which is a memoir by Stephanie Land. Um, my is mother... This the, the, based on the, what the TV mm-hmm. show is based on? Yeah, my mother-in-law and I watched the um, Netflix miniseries about this um, memoir a couple years ago, and I really loved it. I thought the story was inspirational. I thought the acting was superb. Um, it's really, really good. And this memoir did not disappoint. Um, it's really just Stephanie Land's journey through poverty and navigating um, the welfare system and benefits while she's raising a daughter on her own and leaving an abusive relationship and working as a maid. Um, and she's just a very, very good storyteller. Um, and I think she's very honest about things without, um, I don't know, I just think she's very honest about it without being despairing and um, without bogging you down when you have every reason to be bogged down. It just is really, really good. And I loved her story. I also loved reading the um, the introduction Sorry, my words aren't coming to me very well. But anyway, reading the introduction beforehand that explained um, that there was like an organization that tries to write about um, like economic injustice and to really highlight writers who um, have lived that life. And that's how Stephanie Land got connected with this organization. And then they helped sponsor her to write this book. So I, I thought all of that was truly inspirational. She just came out with another memoir called Class. So Maid um, follows her story until she gets into college, and Class follows her struggle while she's in college. So I have not yet read that yet. It's on my wait list for Libby, but it's a very good book. I also read The Black Church, which is um, the subtitle of that is This Is Our Story, This Is Our Song, by Henry um, Louis Gates Jr. And that is is really just a book that follows the history of the black church and highlights um, values throughout um, their history and also different factions of the black church and like how they're inflo- informed by slavery and liberation and um, talks about Dr. King and Malcolm X and other great leaders throughout um, their history. And that book was very good. Um, I read Between Two Kingdoms, which is a memoir by Suleika Jawad, and that follows her journey um, through cancer. And that book was a very like, heavy read, 
That's another um, memoir. Mm-hmm. But very good. And I found out, so the end of this memoir ends with, like, how she's in remission and everything. And I found out that she's um, now has cancer again, which is truly devastating. But um, she's a very talented author. And then I read Hang the Moon by Jeanette Walls, which is her only novel. I've read her, um, well, I don't know if it's her only novel. It's the only novel of hers that I've read. I think it's the only one that she's written. Um, I have read her nonfiction and really loved it. I will say I don't, I did not love this as much as I have loved her nonfiction. I felt like, so she also, um, this is a historical fiction that's written in the 20s um, about some bootleggers in like rural Appalachian, Virginia. Um, So it's like a very interesting premise. I think there is a lot going on in this novel, like too much for her to really deal with well. Um, But I I still like Jeanette Walls. Um, So that's what I read. Okay, nice. Well, I don't have so many. And for once, I'm not reading multiple books at the same time because for a long time we've been reading Setri by Cormac McCarthy, but uh, as we talked about last episode, we finished it. So now I'm just back to one book at a time. Uh, And the one book that I read recently, um, besides The Voyages of Dr. Doolittle, literally just finished it um, within the last hour of us recording this, is um, this book called Half American by Matthew F. Delmont, um, which Rebecca actually got me for Christmas. Um, And basically it's about... Uh, it's a nonfiction book. It's about um, the uh, role of African Americans in World War II, and also the effect of World War II on African Americans. Um, and so, it basically contextualizes it within, like, a- as a preamble to the Civil Rights Movement, which I think, like, a lot of people. I mean, like, people like, um, um oh shoot, um, what's his name? Go tell on a mountain. Um, James Baldwin. Sorry, I don't know why I forgot who James Baldwin was. Um, people like James Baldwin have basically said that, like, basically that, like, the conditions that um, black people encountered during and, and immediately before and immediately after World War II um, were the catalyst for what eventually became the civil rights movement. Um, and, like, a lot of people in the early civil rights movement especially were World War II veterans. Um, and I didn't even really realize that, like, Medgar Evers you know, the really famous um, civil rights leader who was uh, murdered. Um, he, was a, he was a veteran. Um, a lot of them were, were veterans. Um, and what this book basically tells about is there's, of course, like the normal, like, European and Pacific theater stuff that you always hear about with World War II, but that's honestly not the focus of the book. Um, and I was a little bit worried that it was because I don't love just, like, reading about, like, battle maneuvers and stuff. Um, but it doesn't really do that. What it mostly does is contextualize World War II domestically and what it meant for um, black Americans. Like, it starts with the Spanish Civil War, which was a lot of people, not just black Americans, but a lot of Americans' first engagement with conflict in Europe. And a lot of people say the Spanish Civil War is, like, the true beginning of World War II, like, before Hitler starts invading stuff. Um, because it is the, um, you see, like, the kind of coalescing of what would become the Axis and Allied powers um, around, like, the different factions in the Spanish Civil War. Um, And so, of course, um, a lot of black people, black Americans, um, like other Americans and other British, you know, all all sorts of international people go and fight on the Republican side of the Spanish Civil War against um, 
Franco, who of course was supported by Hitler and by Mussolini, um, you know, and all those good good guys. Um, and um, in the Spanish Civil War, um, because there are black people, a lot of these black people, it's their first experience outside of the U.S., they experience, you know, the ability to be given leadership roles and stuff like that that have been basically pro- prohibited from them uh, in America. Um, and so they come back and are ready to serve in World War II and then are basically, the army segregated um, for a while, like black people aren't even allowed to be combatants. Um, and, you know, this kind of sets off like a whole bunch of pushes to basically integrate the military um, and as a result, um, you know, eventually leads to the integration of broader American society. Like, I didn't realize this, but um, one of the cases, like court cases, that um, was one that helped um, desegregate the military um, was cited in Brown versus Board of Education. So there's like a direct legal precedent in like the the civil rights stuff that happened in World War II to like what we would now consider like the proper civil rights movement in like the 50s and 60s. Um, and also, I mean, a lot of people don't contextualize World War II this way, but apparently, you know, all the black papers did um, at the time was that fascism is was a manifestation of Jim Crow mm-hmm. for uh, black Americans. They talked about... Um, a lot of papers would talk about Hitlerism in the U.S. and what they meant by that was like the the segregated South and the apartheid South and and all that sort of stuff. And so, um, for a lot of these black people, fighting uh, fascism and um, you know all that you know in in World War II was a they they saw this as explicitly like a preamble to you know coming back and then fighting. They called it the double victory, right? The double victory would have been defeating fascism, you know, racial hierarchy in um, the United, in, in um, Europe, and then coming back and defeating it in the United States as well. Um, and uh, a lot of white people didn't have that idea. In fact, um, Confederate flags were flown over some of the occupied German cities and stuff. So yes. there are all sorts of stuff like that. Um, but anyway, I thought, I thought this book, that book was really interesting. Um, and it contextualizes World War II in a way that um, I think a lot of historians contextualize it as, but is not really usually thought of like in the modern like popular retellings of World War II. Right. Um, so half American, it was good. Good. I'm glad. All right. Um, yeah. So now, now on to speaking of race, um, Doctor Doolittle. But real quick, um, just if you're a Knoxville local, I got that book at the bottom, which is a black-owned. Um, bookstore here in Knoxville, in East Knoxville, that is really great, and they're doing some really cool things, and their shop is really cute. Like, you can just go out there and hang out. They have, like, a tea room, and um, they They do a lot of community events. They do a lot of community events. They support local artists. Um, It's just good vibes and really cool. In fact, uh, Jerry Craft, who... um, Yes. Who wrote New Kid. Who wrote New Kid, you know, a, a... of Newberry medal-winning fame and of Newberry Chronicles fame, um, actually came and did a lecture or sp- or spoke, had an event at mm-hmm. the bottom, and we just dropped the ball. We knew that was happening, and we were gonna try to go, and then we just forgot about it. Yeah. Um, but so it, it's a cool place that does stuff like that. Yeah, it's really cute. Um, you should go. Give them your business. And that book was recommended by the staff. Like they have like a oh, staff okay. recommendation well, section. Thank you, staff. Yeah. Um, anyway, 
So anyway, uh, the voyages of Doctor Doolittle back in the nineteen twenties when racism was solved. Um, by Doctor Doolittle himself. By Doctor Doolittle himself, uh, and we'll get to that in a minute. But uh, it's it's my duty, my don- my honor, my um, my burden to bring you the biography of Hugh Lofting, which is actually really interesting. So, um, so this dude is English. He's British um, by birth. Um, and I, Rebecca and I were talking about this, but we just found it interesting that the first two um, Newbery Medal winners were written by authors who basically had immigrated to the United States rather than were, you know, born, quote unquote, like born American or whatever. Like, um, it is like an interesting quirk. Um, and in fact, um, Gaynek as well, mm-hmm. um, which was another 1920s one that we read was uh, Indian American. Mm-hmm. Um, and at any rate, it's, it is interesting that, like, a lot of the early Newbery medals were written by people who didn't grow up in the United States initially. Um, anyway, um, so Hugh Lofting is born in 1886 um, in a place that I would consider pronouncing Berkshire, England, but I looked up the pronunciation, and it's Berkshire. Oh. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway... Um, he didn't stay in England for long, though. Uh, he went to college at MIT in, of course, the United States um, and studied civil engineering and was a civil engineer for a while. Um, and he did a lot of stuff through engineering. Um, so I'm just going to list out what uh, I found. So he was an architect at one point. He was a gold prospector at one point. He was a surveyor in Canada at one point. He was a railway engineer. Um, and But by 1912, he decided he didn't really like en- uh, uh, engineering a lot. And so he started doing a lot more writing. Um, however, in 1914, he enlisted in, um, in, in the military, um, in the British military, because he actually never became a naturalized citizen of the United States. Oh. Um, he retained his British citizenship the whole time. Um, so all of his enlisting was done for the British, uh, despite at this point having lived in America for, for several years. Um, and so initially he, in World War I, uh, worked for the British Ministry of Information in the United States. Um, but then in 1916, he actually went into the Army proper and went into combat and stuff. And, you know, World War I was awful. Um, and it was awful for Hugh Lofting as well. He was eventually injured and, and sent home in 1917. Um, but before that... Um, as like a way to communicate with his family, which he was married at the time um, and had kids. Um, I'm not. He had multiple wives um, at separate times, not at the same time. But um, he had, over the course of his life, he had three wives, and I'm not sure which kids he had at which point. Um, but he had children plural, and he was writing letters to these children. And um, he, the war was really awful, as everyone who went to World War One said it was. Um, and he didn't really want to tell his kids about that because you know, it's not really kid stuff. Um, and so he just like invented stories and wrote them in his letters. And this is how he created Dr. Doolittle. And it was apparently influenced by, um, he saw how the animals were treated by the army as, and, and he saw them basically as ex- how the, how the army said that the animals were basically expendable. Like if, mm. a, if a horse was wounded, they just killed the horse, right? Instead of if a person was wounded, they would nurse this person back to health as best as they could. Um, and he just thought this was ghastly. Um, and so um, this idea came to him about, like, well, what if there was this amazing doctor for animals? Um, and so Dr. Doolittle um, comes out of, like, World War I, um, and eventually he kind of readapts these letters into 
um, basically what made his career as a writer, um, which was um, the story of Dr. Doolittle. I want to actually read the full title of uh, the first Dr. Doolittle book, which he published in 1920. Um, so it was called The Story of Dr. Doolittle, colon, being the history of his peculiar life at home and astonishing adventures in foreign parts never before printed. Um, we just need to come back to books having those titles, you know? Um, anyway, two years later, he wrote The Voyages of Dr. Doolittle, which does not have a subtitle, disappointingly. Um, and eventually he wrote, um, if I'm counting right, he wrote 15 books centered on Dr. Doolittle. Um, they were very popular, um, and not all of these books were novel length, like some of them were like picture books. Um, one of them was uh, where he goes to the moon, um, another one is about um, Gub Gub the pig, who um, writes an encyclopedia about food. Um, and anyway, I didn't realize there were so many Dr. Doolittle books. I read a couple of these as a kid, but um, he wrote other books too, but mostly Dr. Doolittle books. He only had one work for adults, which was a poem, a, a book-length poem he published that was like an anti-war um, poem. So, you know still banging the drum for uh, anti-war after his World War I experience. And honestly, I don't blame him. No. Um, anyway, um, in 1919, after he left, was discharged from, from the Army because he was injured, um, he went back to the United States and settled in Connecticut, another Never Newbery Medal-winning person in Connecticut. And uh, I think he lived in Connecticut for a long time, um, but he eventually uh, moved to California and died in California. Um, so I'm not sure where in there he moved from Connecticut to California, but he's buried in Connecticut. So um, okay. I don't know um, how long he was in California. Anyway, over the course of his life, he had three wives, three children. Uh, his son, Christopher, who wrote the afterword for the copy of uh, The Voyages of Dr. Doolittle that I, that I read. Um, and we'll get to these forwards and afterwards in a second. Um, but uh, I... Um, he he um, is or was I'm not sure if he's still alive, but he 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 was in charge of the estate um, mm -hmm. and and like had creative control over what happened with Doctor Doolittle or whatever. So um, we can probably blame him on that really boring 1960s Doctor Doolittle movie that he surely greenlit, oh. um, and maybe the Eddie Murphy one too, which is also not very good. Um, anyway, that's the life of uh, of Hugh Lofting. Um, he died in the 1940s. He did not even live to see World War II, I don't believe. Um, he died in um, 1947. Oh, never mind. So he lived through World War II. Um, but still, he wasn't particularly old. I mean, he was um, 61. Uh, he died of psoriasis. So No, cirrhosis. Cirrhosis. Of the liver. Cirrhosis is like a... like. Skin. Um, <laughs> that would be awful to die of that. <laughs> <you don't laughs> My skin was so irritated, I died. <laughs> it's like cirrhosis. It's I'm sorry. Psoriasis is kind of like eczema. It was really bad eczema, Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, in the 1940s, he died of cirrhosis of the liver. That's cirrhosis. So yeah, now that sorry. now that I've stumbled my way through his biography, um, Rebecca. Why don't you tell I'll us about, about the, the voyages of Dr. Doolittle? Okay. So um, the narrator is Tommy Stubbins, and um, he has a hurt squirrel that has been hurt by... He's a child, by the way. He's a child. He has... He 
has this squirrel that's been hurt by a hawk and he wants to help him. So his friend Matthew Mug, the cat's meat man. This book has amazing names, him, by the way. <laughs> tells him about Dr. Doolittle who can't speak to animals. So um, he gets to Dr. Doolittle's house and he meets all these animals that are really cool. He, Dr. Doolittle has this private zoo um, where the, there are locks on the doors, but from the inside. It's not to keep the animals... Um, in there, but it's to allow them to have their own privacy when they need it. Um, it is not open to the public. It is not like a show. It's just a place where animals can live and be safe and happy um, in this fabulous garden and zoo. Yeah, honestly, this house sounds amazing. Like, yeah. Dr. Doolittle spends a not small amount of time in this book complaining about money and how much he hates money, but he must have a lot of money. He must have a lot. Or have inherited some money to have a house like this. So, um, Tommy, something you should know about Tommy and his family is they are poor. They do not have the money to send Tommy to school. And Tommy has always, like, watched the ships come in and out of the harbor or whatever and has always wanted to, like, travel with them. So he meets this doctor. The doctor helps his squirrel. They become fast friends. And they convince his parents to let Tommy um, go on a voyage with Dr. Doolittle because he will be, like, he'll receive schooling there because Dr. Doolittle's going to teach him and all these things. Well, isn't he so, going to be his apprentice first? Yes. And then they decide to let him go on the voyage? Yes. Yes, yes. That is true. Um, regardless, there's a lot that happens in this book, so we're just going to not, like, we're... It's Rebecca's favorite kind of book, which is people traveling around on a boat listen, having episodic adventures. Listen. So anyway... Before they go, okay, so Dr. Doolittle wants to um, go find Long Arrow, who is a Native American who's the world's greatest naturalist. He can talk to eagles. Um, and Dr. Doolittle, like his whole motive, like his goal throughout this book is he wants to learn the language of the shellfish. Um, it is like notoriously difficult language. The other animals think it's stupid. Um, but he wants to learn uh, the language of the shellfish, and he thinks Long Arrow can help him with this. So before they leave, Luke the Hermit is on trial for murder. That happened in Mexico. and It's not important to know who Luke the Hermit is. No, they barely explain who he is in know, this book. I know. I know. So, I'm, I'm clarifying for our okay, readers. For the, or for, for our listeners. listeners. Okay. So the doctor can speak to animals. There's only one witness that saw this murder happen, and it was Luke's dog. So the doctor convinces the judge to put the dog on the stand, um, and the dog, like, gets Luke off, which I thought was a great scene, which we'll talk about that later. Anyway, so that happens before they leave. A lot of stuff happens before so they, they leave. So they find out that Long Arrow has disappeared, and the last place that he was seen was Spider Monkey Island. So they play this little game to decide where are we going to go on our voyage. And lo and behold, the game said they should go to Spider Monkey Island. Sounds like a Ouija board to me. But regardless, they decide to go to Spider Monkey Island. Bumpo, who's an African prince that you supposedly met in the first book, which I did not read, you definitely comes along. And um, I know. But he comes along and he joins them on the journey, as well as do several stowaways. But Dr. Doolittle doesn't want these stowaways. And so they get to the island of Penzance, and they kick the stowaways off, 
And I did not realize until I read the afterward that this is supposed to imply that they then become the pirates of Penzance. Oh. Did not realize that. I did not so anyway, realize that either. Cute little, cute little tidbit there. So, along the way to Spider Monkey Island, they stop in the islands of Capablanca of Spain. And um, Dr. Doolittle is just so upset that they are still doing bullfighting, which, good on him. And so he, like, kind of tricks the bullfighters because they don't know he can speak to animals. He's like, if I, um, if I win in the ring, you will stop doing bullfighting forever. Well, obviously he can talk to this bull. So he, like, is able to tame him without bullfighting. And bullfighting ends forever and they have to run out of the island because the people are going to try to kill him or whatever. So they get to Spider Monkey Island. And all I'm going to say is... Well, no. So they find what? I was gonna say it's it's tricky how they get to Spider Monkey Island because it's a floating island. That's the thing that's unique about it. It is a floating island. They get there and they discover this beetle with the its name starts with the J. It's the type of beetle it is. Jab jab. Anyway, they meet this beetle and this beetle has these pictures drawn on him on a little note. Like it's tied up to him like a message in a bottle, but it's a message in a beetle. And the message lets the doctor know that Long Arrow and his friends are trapped in this cave. So they get them out. They set them free. Um, they help them escape. And they're the heroes. So basically, let me just sum up what happens on Spider Monkey Island. The doctor teaches these poor, ignorant indigenous peoples all of these things and they just can't live without him so they crown him king and you forgot he, he fought hates, a war too. listen i said yes we're summing things up he fights a war he anyway so he's crowned king he doesn't want to be king there's no way he can't be king and then they meet the great glass sea snail who's like this um deep sea creature anyway and they escape with the sea snail to go back to England, and it's time for tea. The end. That's the book. Yeah. There's that, a lot of stuff that happens in between, but we need to get on with it. It's this. a hard book to summarize because it's like so much stuff happens, but it's not like a linear like point A to point. Well, it is point A to point B, but there's not a like, connection between the different letters of the alphabet. Right. Um, point A to point B <laughs> to point C. Also, this book is so long. This book is long. It's not as long as the story of mankind. It is seven, well, if that's our metric, but it would have been at the time. It has had we read the story of mankind in 1922. Parts. Seven parts, you all. Anyway, um, what did you like about this book, Michael? This is a reread for Michael, a first, first read for in me. At least twenty years. Okay. It it was a dim memory. Tell um, us what you liked. I remember really liking this book as a kid, and the things I remembered about this book are the things. That I I still I still enjoy. Like I think I like um, I just like the concept of speaking with animals. That's fun, and like this concept of like going on a quest that is not really a quest for anything but knowledge. Like that's fun. Like you're like I want to figure out how to talk to shellfish, and the it's like a typical adventure story where you're just trying to find something. But but instead of like doing regular adventure things like treasure or something. It's like we're trying to learn things. And that sounds really didactic, but it's not actually a very didactic book. It's like that's like the 
the um, excuse for the book to do all sorts of like funny and wacky things. Um, and it just does kind of, I don't know, it, it tries on a lot of different modes and I think some of them work and some of them don't, but like it's always moving on to something new. And I think as long as the book is, the pace is pretty brisk. Like you go from um, him, like Dr. Doolittle, like investigating a murder mystery to him, uh, you know, pranking the bullfighters in like not that much, that long of time. Um, there's like most of it's pretty comic in tone, and I think that works in some places better than others. But there are some places where it's kind of funny. Like uh, Bumpo, the African prince, has come to England because he's studying uh, at, at, at a school, and the name of Oxford. the school's name it's not Oxford; it's called Bulford. Um, oh. Because a bull. Oh, they they sent everybody else to Oxford. Why could he not go? I can't. I don't remember, but like, it's but there's like funny stuff like that throughout that are just kind of like you know it's not like laugh out loud funny, but it's like amusing. Um, I think some of the ideas are fun. Like um, one thing you don't mention is um, the the sea snail that they go in and they go back to the um, to their home on the sea snail. He's a glass sea snail, which means that his shell is transparent. And so they go inside the shell and he like scoots them along the ocean floor until they're back to um, one of the great names in this book, Puddleby on the Marsh, which is the, oh, yeah, the name of the that. town they live I in. I also left out that he does achieve his goal of learning the language of the sel- shellfish. Yeah. Because of this interaction with the sea snail. Anyway, continue. Yeah. Um, Anyway, like, I just think, like, the island that's floating is fun. Like, that's a fun idea that, like, there's this island, and the idea is that there's a big air pocket um, underneath it that's keeping it afloat. Um, like, that that's a fun idea. Um, I don't know. I, th- I just think, like, in all of these little incidents, there's something I enjoy in each of these incidents. Um, and mostly the things I enjoy now are the things I remembered from as a kid. I remember like approaching this book. I was like, Oh yeah, this is the book with the floating Island. Or this is the book where they ride the shellfish on the ocean floor. Or this is the, this is the book where he talks to the bulls and doesn't, it's like babe in, in, um, in the movie babe where he talks to the sheep and they, they do this amazing show, um, that dumbfounds everyone. It's the same thing with the bullfight. Like I remembered all these things and those things were the things that I, still mostly enjoyed this time around. Like I, there's a sense of whimsy and just, um, this idea of not taking itself very seriously that I think like makes the book go down easy, or at least does for me. Um, and I appreciate that. Um, anyway, what did you like Rebecca? I think the premise is cute. I think the doctor is really, really nice and he's passionate toward animals I like that he hates bullfighting and the constriction of the zoos. I thought all of that was probably pretty advanced for his time, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I don't... I still don't I don't know what animal rights are like in the 1920s, but certainly a lot of people would not have had these views. Right. So I think... I also just think... I'm glad that I know kind of how these stories started and like a really dark place in his life that was really scary and he wanted to be connected to his kids. So he just invents this world that is very fun and exciting and totally different than what he's experiencing. I think all of that is really, really neat. Um, My favorite scene, honestly, I love that trial of Luke the Hermit. I just thought that was really funny. It is funny. I thought it was funny. Like, 
it's so unbelievable, but also, like, it, it's not supposed to be anything but that. You know, it's like this doctor that is, like, putting this dog on the stand. And I just think... Well, and how he gets the dog to be on the stand, the judge is like, you yeah, can't like, talk to animals what, prove it to me. I'm going to bring in my dog. And my dog's going to tell you what I ate for dinner. And then the dog tells him all these other, like, embarrassing things. The judge is like, okay, okay, that's enough. Put the dog <laughs> on the stand. I thought that scene was really cute and funny and, like... I was interested in finding out what really happened with the murder. Honestly, my favorite parts of the book are in Puddleby on the Marsh. Like, I wish we would have spent more time there, but it's not that kind of book. It's like, But also, I will say one thing I did not remember from this book. I read this on my Kindle, so I could see, like, percentages of the book. They don't depart from Puddleby on the Marsh until 40% of the way through the book. Like, I did not remember that they spent that long before they departed on their voyage. But it's it's quite a long time. Yeah. And I will I will say, for as long as this book is, it doesn't really drag. I you know, it's just there's a lot of little episodes, but like I appreciated that the chapters were short. So if like you got tired, you could stop. It it as it's long, but it reads quicker than you think it would. Um I appreciate that it reads like a children's book, which some of the ones that we've read in the 20s have not read like a children's Including, book. Including, um, again, The Story of Mankind. Yeah. Was um, Gay Neck 20s or 30s? I think that was the end of the 20s, which also interesting. I mean, it makes sense given that this was like a, you know, cataclysmic trauma for, um, for, for for an entire generation, but like another book to come out of like World, World War One, yeah, you know, and to be astonishingly anti-war, yeah. So I just thought with other ones that we've read in the twenties that have like not really read like a children's book, this one actually did. So I liked all those things. One thing I forgot to mention in the bio, I'm just going to mention now because you're done with your positives, right? Yes. Yeah. So this is a bit of a transition point, but I do want to mention apparently uh, Hugh Lofting. Vaguely was inspired and based Dr. Doolittle off of an actual figure in real life who was not a naturalist but was a surgeon named um, John Hunter, who was a like 18th century surgeon, British surgeon, um, who like w- contributed a lot to medicine and and the study of medicine in the West. I guess um, you know like he was he taught the person who created the like some early vaccines. Um, his, oh. his claim to fame is that he did the first success, uh, the, the first recorded artificial insemination. Oh. Um, but he did a lot of other cool stuff, too. Um, and some other not cool stuff, like, you know, doctors of this time tend to, like, you know, doing experiments on people without their consent and things like that. But Especially if you're a person of color? I don't know. Uh, I, it did not um, mention that on the brief skimming of Wikipedia that I did. But... Uh, I do want to mention that, like, before we get to the negatives, um, which are going to come soon, like, one of the interesting things is that this book, um, which, is, which is another thing I had forgotten, but this book purports to be the recollections of Tommy as an adult, as an looking adult, back yeah. on it. So he's an adult in the 1920s, looking back on Dr. Doolittle years and years ago. Like, I think Dr. Doolittle was supposed to take place in, like, the 1840s or something like that, like... It's it's very early um, compared to when this book was written. And so, like, I think that Hugh Lofting is consciously setting Dr. Doolittle within that kind of early scientific revolution okay. milieu. Uh, I guess the by the 
early 19th century. It's not early, but within the scientific revolution of like these kind of like iconoclastic, you know, almost invariably men who were trying to be like innovators in their field and did so through like, at least in the mythologized version of it, like this did so through like gumption and sheer intelligence, um, you know, did these experiments where they just contributed to human knowledge. And I think that like Dr. Doolittle as a character is meant to evoke that past, or at least that mythologized past. And I think that explains some of the problems that we're going to have with it in a second. Um, because, uh, Rebecca, why don't we start with you? What would you not like about this book? Well, I just feel like I have to give a disclaimer. I don't think these are the reasons why I dislike this book, but I think I disliked it more than you because this is literally the book that I hate. Like, I don't know why, but I do not like books that feature heavily on a boat. I do not like Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Just on the boat the whole time. I don't love, I don't know why. I have no good explanation of it. I also really hate books. This book does not do this. I really hate books that take a lot of time to explain to you the parts of the ship at the beginning of the book so you know what's going on. I do not care. I don't care. Like just, I don't need to know. Well, in fact, there's a kind of funny scene in this book in the in the Voyages of Doctor Doolittle, where this trained sailor comes up because they're looking for people mm-hmm. to man this boat that they're going to take this voyage on. This trained sailor comes up, he's like, "Oh, you're doing this boat all wrong. You know, you got to do this, this, and this." Mm-hmm. And Doctor Doolittle's like, "Get out of here, man! I don't Which, want you." You know, I appreciate because Doctor <laughs> Doolittle doesn't know anything about boats. He doesn't care anything about boats. They don't even use like correct boat terminology or After, anything, which I think I love. Yeah. Uh, so if you're going to write a book about boats, don't care about them, which is what he did. It, it's like a plot After, point that they like no, kick off the expert. It's it so is. funny. And Tommy is like concerned. He's like, or one of the birds is concerned, or maybe both of them. They're like, you know, it really, it really is worth considering. Should we have someone that actually knows about seafaring or whatever it's called? To be here, and they're like, no, it's not important. What's really funny is, like, after a shipwreck happens, um, Tom, I thought that was funny, the doctor, like, tied Tommy to part of the ship when he was asleep because there was, like, a storm and they were going to crash, and he, he wanted to just be able to, like, find that part of the ship later. And while after the crash, while Tommy's floating in the sea and the bird goes find him, the doctor's just shaving on the part of the ship that he's on. I just, it's funny. That's funny. Anyway, I don't like books about boats. I don't like voyages. I don't like episodes. And this book is all those things. a lot of those things, So, I'm just going to give that, like, disclaimer. This book is very, um, this book is a product of its time. And what what I I mean by that. that, That's why I brought up earlier, like, what it's trying to evoke. What I mean by that is it's very colonialist and it's very racist. And Michael and I actually read two different versions of this book. His is not technically abridged, but it has been, like, modified to take out some yeah. of the So, like, a history thing that we both found out is that the Dr. Doolittle books were allowed to go out of print for a couple decades in the 20th century. Um, and we're not really... People weren't really eager to revisit them because a lot of the parts, or at least some parts of it, like... Were, were racist, you know? Like, So it, my book yeah. had the N-word at least twice. Yeah, so Rebecca had the uncut uh, version, whereas my version was in the 1980s, uh, Christopher Lofting authorized a um, like an editing of, and new printing of the books that 
he believed would have been in line with what his father would have wanted. Let me say, when I say the N-word is used, it's not like people are then chastised for that word being used. It's just like normal. Normal to call black people that. There was a female version of the word I had never read before that I learned in this book. Interesting. Anyway, so that's there. Black people are, um, there's like this little subplot that is in both books, but they changed the language a little bit in Michael's than they didn't in mine. Like there's a subplot about how um, the monkey, what was his name? Chi-Chi. Okay, I thought that was it, but I didn't. Okay, Chi-Chi like um, is on a ship and he meets these funny people that look like this girl that he, um, his cousin that he's in love with. And so he's like, oh, I could look like them. So he just puts a dress on and they think he's a little girl. Well, you can tell if you read between the lines, that was a black family, these funny people. So they're saying that they look like monkeys. Yeah, I think that like it, we, we compared side by side my edited version of what this incident looked like and Rebecca's version because <clears throat> I didn't catch this, although like once Rebecca showed me, it seemed fairly obvious. They they took out the description of the family as funny. Like he just looked at people on the boat and was like, "Oh, that person looks like one of my cousins." So it's still and problematic. It's still problematic, but it it's signals less of like wink, wink. Yeah. This is supposed to be some some black people that he thinks looks like his family. And then Bumpo is like such a. He's comic relief the whole book and the at the expense of his intelligence. Right. Basically. Like he has what do you call them, malapropisms? Is that how you say it? Malaprops, yeah. Malaprops. Like he mispronounces all these words, um, but trying to be like you can tell the way that Lofting is writing this character is somebody that's been around educated um people. Educated yeah, at white bo- people. At educated white people. And so he's trying to use these like um, million dollar words and keeps messing them up the whole time. There's like some sub, I think there's some comments about him like suggesting cannibalism at some point. There is point. because the stowaway, when that, yeah. one, one of the stowaways is the, the boat expert. Yeah. And he eats all their food and they're like, what are we going to do for food? And he's like, <laughs> and Bumpo's like, can we just eat him? And right. the parrot thinks that's a great idea, by the way. Right. Um, well, no, I think it says you can't do that. The here. parrot's like, you can't do that, but that is a great idea. Okay. So, anyway, um, and then when they get to Spider Monkey Island with the indigenous peoples, it's just very condescending. They're portrayed as these ignorant natives that don't know about fire, they don't know about anything, they're just going to die if the doctor doesn't, you know, do something and teach them these things. And so it's just, it's, it, it's a product of its time. And this is the type of book that I don't particularly enjoy. And so that is what I disliked. I also dislike those things, except for the boat stuff. I don't mind book books. But um and I so so I read the first Doctor Doolittle book as a child, and then I read um this one. I have not read any other Doctor Doolittle books, neither as a child nor growing up. And I remember my dad in the first Dr. Doolittle book, that's the one that people really ding for being racist. Like, a lot of the stuff that we talked about here is kind of ambient racism, like how characters are portrayed or whatever. It's not really inherent to the plot of the book, except maybe some of the stuff on Spider Monkey Island. But most of it is, like, you know, just comments that characters make or descriptions are kind of, like, they have this kind of colonialist view of, like, other people who aren't British. Uh, and that's what's racist about this book. Um, whereas in the, in the first book, Bumpo is an antagonist, 
um, when Dr. Doolittle goes to Africa and is like captured by him. And there's this whole plot that's like really awful um, <clears throat> involving like Dr. Doolittle, like Bumpo wants to be white because this woman he loves is only interested in white men. Um, and so Dr. Doolittle like tricks Bumpo into saying like he's this great doctor who can turn him white. And so he just like paints his face white. And then Bumpo's like so happy to be white that they let Dr. Doolittle go. It's just kind of like horrible like pranking somebody based along like racial lines. And like my, I remember my dad saying like that's not a really nice, you know, thing that he does. And like that's racist and all that. Um, and I don't, I didn't, I didn't have the wherewithal as a child to kind of recognize how in this book, even though what happens to the characters is not inherently that racist, like it is still from that kind of colonialist mindset of, like, like, here's the thing. Like, everyone who is not Dr. Doolittle is, like, less intelligent mm-hmm. and needing his help in some way. And that's not in and of itself, like, a colonialist mindset, except that he is doing so as he is traveling across the world. Like, even um, Long Arrow, you know, who Dr. Doolittle respects as his great naturalist, and, like, the book is very, like, you know, lavishing praise on how brilliant Long Arrow is as a naturalist, but Dr. Doolittle has to save Long Arrow, and then Long Arrow, like, becomes his servant. Um, and it's just this kind of, like, glorified idea of, like, <clears throat> when when it's in that context, like, him being compared to these kind of, like, scientific forebears, um, or being inspired, you know, by these scientific forebears makes a lot of sense, because a lot of those came at the same time as colonialism and all that and like the people that like you know were you know uh, praised for being great explorers or great contributors to human knowledge often did so at the behest of colonialism um, or at the expense of people who were colonized Um, and that's not like true across the board but as a principle it kind of is and so like I think like Hugh Lofting is like ingesting that as like like oh well in order to tell the story of this great naturalist he must travel abroad and of course since he's a great naturalist he must you know teach everyone else about all these things um and i don't know like i i didn't like that <clears throat> about the book but it is really interesting as a case study because it's like benevolent yeah. racism like yeah. you can tell that Hugh Lofting thinks that this is some great enlightened book and mm-hmm. like we mentioned especially with animals it is very like you know feels forward thinking even today like a ethical zoo like that like that's not something that we would do now um and I don't know like I I wrote down a few things because I read a little bit about this um that Hugh Lofting in his like professional life as a writer like, was very open about being, like, actually anti-racist, um, and how, like, racism and national, like, national allegiance were things that caused, you know, great pain and suffering, and it makes sense coming out of, like, World War One specifically, you know, some of this stuff, like, especially with national allegiance, but racism, too, like, there's this quote that was in the, um, the foreword of the book that Rebecca, uh, the copy of the book Rebecca had, um, and that, um, where, where Hugh Lofting was quoted as write, writing in The Nation, the magazine The Nation, um, as saying this, like, quote, if we make children see that all races, given equal physical and mental chances for development, have about the same batting average of good and bad, we shall have laid another very substantial foundation stone 
in the edifice of peace and internationalism. And it's kind of like an interesting failure of the book then that he had this very clearly articulated belief that like there is no inherent good or bad races, but that he, he unintentionally transposes a kind of like British colonial mindset that kind of patronizes people who aren't British. And it's not just the indigenous people, not just Bumpo. There's also a fairly unflattering depiction of a Mexican earlier Mm -hmm. on in the murder trial. He's like, the kind of stereotype of like the shifty Mexican who double crosses you or whatever, like, I don't know. It's just like interesting to think about like, you know, the ways in which you can just, I'm assuming he's sincere in this, like be completely unintentional in being racist just because of, and people use the product of its time as sometimes a way to hand, hand wave away Mm -hmm. problems with older stuff. And I don't, I'm not using it in that sense. Like these are still problems um, because, you know, whether or not this was just the default view of his time it you know, British colonial mindset, you know, r- resulted in some very terrible things, um, done toward these people who were colonized, but it, you know, he is, it is truly a product of his time in the sense of because it was his time, he did not realize that these depictions were out of step with the ideology he professed to have. Well, and I think it's also important that when you hear people say that, you have to question what they mean by equal physical and mental chances. Because if you if you view those positive like physical and mental chances through a white lens, you're going to view everyone that hasn't had that same like experience or cultural values or any of that as inferior or not having um, you know what I mean? Yeah, well, like, yeah, I mean, the, the Spider Monkey Island people are a great example of this, right. where um, there's kind of this whole thing about how these people don't have fire as a technology. And I tried to Google, like, are there, like, contemporary people groups who don't use fire? You know, because there's still, like, nomadic peoples in, like, Africa and, and you know, in C- Central and South America and stuff. And I was like, is this a real thing? And I can't tell, but... There are all sorts of civilizations that didn't have some of the technologies that we would consider essential to the um, advancement, quote-unquote, of society. Like, some very powerful and otherwise technologically advanced societies didn't have, like, the wheel, for instance. And so, like, I think it's a worthwhile thought experiment to say, like, well, what if people didn't have fire? What would they be like? But he doesn't... He... Lofting... All he basically uses that as saying is these are these poor, helpless people who must be saved with technology that this man can bring. Um, and I and I'm also not- like if if his skill is that he can talk to animals, like that's how he could have helped the natives, and it just been like fine. Like, but instead. They can't do anything. Right, and They're so that's not what I mean. Cooks. Is it? They don't know how to use their land. Like, it, it's just. It's a poor understanding of how people groups can be different while not being inferior. Because, right. like, basically, what I'm getting from this quote about how, you know, they have the same opportunities to do good and bad or whatever, there's an unassumed, or, you know, um, con- connecting that with this book, there is, an, there is an assumption being made that that which is most like, you know, kind of quote-unquote civilized British society mm-hmm. is the good. Mm-hmm. And so these people on Spider Monkey Island, you don't have fire. I mean, I like fire. I like living with heating and stuff. 
But there are all sorts of societies that live without things that I would consider essential, and those societies are fine, and they shouldn't. And they shouldn't need. They shouldn't need to. Right. There's all sorts of ways that societies can be innovative, and in what. And so I guess like, if there is a civilization that is without a technology, I'm not saying that that civilization shouldn't be given access to that technology, but the the way that is presented in this book is these people will die if they don't get fire. And the reason for that, there's a plot contrivance is that the island is floating further south and they're going to freeze to death. And, like, I get, like, if you're in a more temperate climate, like, it doesn't matter. But we don't see, like, it talks about them eating food raw and stuff, like, just being miserable because they can't cook food and stuff. And, like, how, I don't know, like, there are so many different ways that human cultures have adapted across the world that in ways that, like, w- without resources that we would consider essential, uh, you know, from a kind of, you know, our own points of view, it... It's, it is like a failure of imagination by Hugh Lofting that yeah. he can't conceive of these native populations as living in any other way. And also, like, you're, the, the forward in your version of the book points this out, too. The depiction of the natives in the illustrations, as well as, like, how they're depicted, doesn't actually match what natives are like in, like, indigenous people in South America are like, which is where they're supposed to be mm-hmm. from, like, off the coast. Like, the... Basically, he's taken this, the stereotypes about Great Plains Indians, you know, like mm-hmm. um, Geronimo and like Apache and that, that sort of thing, um, and just transposed it because that's, again, if I think a failure of imagination to understand how, oh, just because they're Native American doesn't mean that they're like how movies, well, I don't know if he was watching movies in the 1920s, but how, you know, media, you know, has kind of stereotyped all American natives as being those that we had conflict about at that time, you know, on the Great Plains. Um, anyway, that's a long way of saying, we're kind of going along here, but I didn't l- like those things about the book, and they kind of put a damper on the book for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting, I don't know, I, I, I think it's maybe a call to humility, like, you know, you can have really high-minded ideas but still be in some way beholden to unintentional biases and stuff like that. Like it's, it's just worth, it's, you know, it's worth considering. And I think it's one of the reasons why, which is actually a theme in Dr. Doolittle books, like communication and learning about other people groups is so key is that it exposes your biases. And I, you know, for as much as Hugh Lofting is forward thinking about animals or whatever, he clearly doesn't know very much about Africa or the Americas in terms of its indigenous populations. Yeah. Um, and that's really apparent and, you know, kind of makes some not so great things happen. Yeah. That said. Did you decide on thumbs up or well, thumbs down? Well, hold on. Oh. I, I know I'm going really long here, but I'm, and I, we talked for like 15 minutes or something about this specific thing, but this is not actually what made me dislike some parts of the book the most. Like I was kind of expecting like, oh, 1920s, like mm-hmm. there's probably going to be some stuff I didn't remember that was... You know, not not great. Um, but I actually found you found the the prose really readable, and it was readable. But I also found it kind of dull at times. Um, and I don't know some of the cool stuff that I remembered, which I liked the concept of. I kind of forgot that they they get kind of. It doesn't feel like they're executed with as much imagination as I remembered. Like for instance, going in the sea snail. There's like a page where they're like going on the ocean floor and it doesn't really tell you anything about the ocean floor. It doesn't tell you anything about like, what they see. It's so weird. Like it's it's like the most 
like Doctor Doolittle is apparently writing pages and pages of stuff he observes, but they don't come up with any cool stuff. Yeah. For them on the ocean floor, like I, you can contrast that with like um, Jules Verne, who's very much in the same vein of Doctor Doolittle in terms of exploring and that kind of like you know Victorian mindset sort of stuff. Um, when they go undersea, they see like Atlantis and the giant squids and you know, all sorts of stuff um, in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. But in this, they just kind of like in a page, like, yeah, we saw some stuff. And then we're back at Puddleby on the Marsh. And that's just kind of disappointing that there's that. And that was the case for a lot of this book, where it's like, I remember this happening in the book, but I don't know if my mind filled in more details or what, but I remember this book felt weirdly spare to me in a way that I didn't remember and made some of the cool concepts don't not feel as fully realized. Um, and honestly, that was as, you know, I don't know what this says about me, but that was as much of a damper on my enjoyment of this book as um, the kind of problematic, like, colonial stuff. Um, I just, it didn't, it wasn't as, as much as I said I liked some of the fun stuff, it wasn't as fun as I remembered. And maybe it's just me being, you know, 20, 25 years older and just being more jaded or having higher expectations than I did yeah. as a kid. But I don't know. So what would you decide? I'm kind of torn about this because there are still things that I like about it. It's well, not a complete negative. but I There's always things that we like about the books. Not always. I don't know. You know, I think I said this earlier when we were talking about free water, how... Yeah, you had no problem. Sometimes, well, well, that's what I'm saying is sometimes (laughs) when I'm waffling on something, I'm like, well, default to positive. And I think I'm going to say thumbs down, which really surprised me. I I truly enjoyed that book as a child. Yeah. And I was anticipating enjoying it this time around with maybe a more adult lens when it comes to some of the colonialist stuff that I was kind of expecting. Um, But I think thumbs down because... The, co- the combination of the, 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 the racism stuff and just the fact, like I said a minute ago, like it kind of feels flatter and smaller than I remembered it being. Yeah. Um, and it's just like returning to a house you grew up in. You know, it, everything seems smaller, I guess. But yeah. I, I don't know. I've returned to other books that I read as children in this series, and my, my enjoyment of it was usually at least the same. Yeah. And this is the first one I've returned to, and I'm like, man, I... I don't know that I really like this book that much anymore. Well, I'm sorry for you in that. I know that's kind of disappointing, but I am happy that we are in agreement. I also give this book a thumbs down. Yeah. But I was able to find parts that I enjoyed about it, and when I first started reading, I was like, oh, no. I didn't think I was going to find anything. And so anyway, there we go. Yeah. Well, <coughs> that's this is going to be our longest podcast in a while. Um so we'll go ahead and wrap up quickly. Um, next time on the Newberry Chronicles, we're in the 1930s. And we're reading The Cat Who Went to Heaven. By Elizabeth Coatesworth. Um, who knows what we'll have to say about the racial dynamics of this book, because it's Which set in Japan. but the guys. It's set in Japan, but the woman's last name is Coatesworth. Well, so. because she was a missionary in Japan. Oh. So. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm sure that she has an enlightened view of the Japanese uh, culture. Um, Anyway, 1931 is when that book won the Newbery Medal. So um, if you have any feedback for us, newberrychronicles at gmail.com. Otherwise, that's, that's all. Thanks for listening.